Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shee. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks. And in addition to being Victor's co-host for iGen Politics, formerly known as Intergenerational Politics, I am a wearer of hashtag Jill's pins. And today's pin says Intergenerational Politics. It was something I had made when we first started this podcast, which was 259 episodes ago. And so for today's 260th episode, we're going to return to our roots, which is to have an intergenerational conversation. Just Victor and I are going to talk about some of the hottest issues in today's news. So look forward to whatever we feel like talking about is what we're going to talk about. Yes. And we have a lot to talk about because we have everything from legal news to political news um, and everything in between. Um, and, you know, Jill, it's so hard to believe that we started more than three and a half years ago um, with this podcast. And um, now we are doing the first ever episode just between you and me. I can't believe it's the first time we've ever done this, although I'm... we ask questions from a different perspective. Yes. And, and I wanted to start today by just saying the reason you're not wearing your pin is because it's probably at home or, well, probably at home, and you're in Washington for the second summer in a row. Last summer, you interned at the White House, and this summer, you're interning at uh, Center for American Progress, a great organization, and you're doing excellent work, and you just got a huge write-up in the insider's inside of news for people in Washington. And I just wanted to congratulate you on that because they recognize one that you're a star and you're really smart, but they also recognize that even though we're an intergenerational podcast, you actually share a lot of my values. You and I met when you were 17, you were still in high school, just about to graduate, and you were running as a Biden delegate, as yeah. was I. And that's how we first met. That's so, how we met. And it was through Twitter. I don't know if you remember that, Jill, but I reached out to you on Twitter because I was looking at the um, uh, every delegate who was running in <laughs> Illinois for President Biden or then candidate Biden. And I saw your name and I said, there's no way that Jill Wine-Banks, the Jill Wine-Banks that I usually watch on MSNBC <laughs> about the Mueller report is also running to, to become a delegate. And so I thought, I didn't actually even know that you were living in Chicago at the time. <laughs> um, so I reached out to you and I just said, hi, I'm running um, a couple districts uh, west of you. Um, would love to connect. And I had no idea that it would lead to this podcast, which we've now been doing for three and a half years. Um, so it, it that would that's how it all started. And I guess the rest is history. It's all part of your total charm, because obviously I cannot answer everybody who texts me, writes me, DMs me. I think it was through a DM. And there was something about how you wrote it that made me curious. And I answered and it was during COVID. So we ended up not being able to meet until um, much later. We met at the farmer's market in Evanston, and that was our first actual meeting wearing masks, but we we managed to be outdoors and get to know each other. So it's it's been terrific. But so let's talk about, I don't know, want to start with Mark Meadows and what's yeah. new with Mark Meadows? Yeah, what are you well, thinking? I mean well, I mean, as we're recording this episode, it seems like Mark Meadows and Jeffrey Clark, um, both who are very close in Trump's legal circle, are trying to stave off um, their their appearance in court and want to uh, move their move the case up to federal court. And you're the legal expert. Walk us through what they're trying to do. And if you think they're going to succeed, I mean, this 
I mean, Mark Meadows is using this justification of, well, you know, I was a federal employee, and so this is why I should move it up, when it doesn't seem like that's in the scope of a chief of staff position. But Jill, walk us through that and whether or not you think it's going to be successful. Well, he phrased it as, I was just arranging phone calls and meetings, and that is the job of the chief of staff. (laughs) Well, actually, it's probably the job of a secretary or a clerk who works for him, not his actually arranging them. But yeah, it is liberally interpreted. It could be within that context, but it's not when you're arranging phone calls to commit a coup. That is outside the range. If you're arranging a meeting with someone to learn about foreign affairs, foreign policy, advice for the president, that's within your job, finding the right people, not this. This was not in the scope of his job, nor were any of his actions like going to Georgia and overseeing the counting of ballots and complaining about it. No, that's not in his job. That motion will fail for him and it will fail for Eastman. It is not uh, under the scope of federal employment that any that any of the people who are federal, I mean, there were some people who were federal employees who were indicted or worked for the president. Uh, some didn't at all, but even those who work for the president are not going to get away with that claim Right. And then there's there, there was another one. I'm sure you saw this because you're up on top of every bit of news, um, which was to hold off being arraigned or being booked right. because it's going to go to federal court. Well, it's not going to go to federal court because there's no federal defense to these cases. And so even if it was pending this motion to move it to federal court, the state court gets to go ahead with its case until it is removed. Until it's removed, it is a state case. State law governs. They will all have to turn themselves in by Friday. Right. Trump, as you know, has said he's coming in on Thursday. Um, and and tell me what you think the reason he picked Thursday is. Because it's right after the GOP debate. Yeah. <laughs> like he would like to take away the news. The news, and, yes. Just although, like do you does. think that's smart? I, as in, I'm sorry, you know, with my different generational perspective, think, what is he thinking? You want to take away from the debate by showing that you're being booked, mugshot? I don't well, think well, that's I, well, what I you want to happen. A, I, I think he's using it for a fundraising opportunity. Um, you know, of course, with Donald Trump, the the norm isn't uh, uh, normal. I mean, he, he I think I think he is going to use that mugshot, and he's going to use him going into prison as a way to mobilize and to gin up his supporters to then donate money, and then it'll help him, his campaign, which is just so strange the times we're living in. But that's the Republican Party right now. Um, and 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 as you were talking, you know, I just want to read this um, response that Fannie Willis um, gave to Mark Meadows's lawyer, uh, Mr. Moran, and she basically said, "I am not granting." any extensions. I gave two weeks for people to surrender themselves to the court. Your client is no different than any criminal uh, defendant in this jurisdiction. The two weeks was a tremendous courtesy. At 12.30 p.m. on Friday, I shall file warrants in the system. My team has availability to meet to discuss reasonable consent bonds Wednesday and Thursday. I mean, it's remarkable to see everything that Fannie Willis and you know Judge Chutkin are doing to treat these people just like any other criminal defendant um, and, you know, it's, it, I guess it's just crazy the times we're living in. And I'm sure as, as someone who's, um, you know, been in the court, who's, who's covered this stuff a lot. I mean, 
is this any exception or is this basically how all criminal defendants are treated? Yes, it is. And I mean, Judge Chetkin is calling him Mr. Trump, not yes. President Trump. Not former president. He, she's referred to him as Defendant Trump. Right. Those are how you would be treated if you were named Joe Smith, if you were any other defendant. Yeah. And it is appropriate. I want to ask you a question from your perspective, because, OK, when I started practicing law, 4% of all lawyers were women. 4%. That's all. And almost none of those were in court. I was one of the rare people of my generation who chose litigation as a career. Mm-hmm. And I was always the only woman in the courtroom, and except for maybe the uh, court stenographer, who was, except with one exception that I can think of in my many years of trying cases, only one was a man. Um, now, when you go into a courtroom, you have the judge, the prosecutor, maybe the defense lawyer. I mean, think of all the women we have come to see and respect besides Fannie Willis, besides Judge Chutkin. Just think of all the others. Roberta Kaplan in the civil case yes, is the yes. lawyer for E. Jean Carroll. Just I mean, I could go on and on. I don't want to bore people with a list, but it's for me, it is so satisfying to see how many women are prominent, successful lawyers. Now, we also unfortunately have two women who are defendants. We have Sidney Powell and Jenna Ellis. Yeah. And uh, I'm I'm sad that any lawyer is in that group. Yeah. I'm even sadder that there are, well, I guess I'm not. I'm just sad that any, because I personally hate being called a woman lawyer. I am a lawyer, period. I'm a litigator. I'm a criminal lawyer. I'm not a lady lawyer. So um, I would say it's sad that any lawyers are in that group. And yeah. God knows there's a lot of them. But what do you think? Because you're I mean, used you know. to seeing women in positions of power. Right. Well, and you also have Judge Eileen Cannon um, yes. also- Amy Coney Barrett. So I guess there are, unfortunately, women who sit in those positions who aren't um, so, I guess. Well, no, I mean, they're they're just lawyers and they're just judges. That's exactly. my they're point. Just, yes, they should be lawyers, judged the judges, same right. way you would judge anyone right. else. But exactly. the thing is, it's not unusual to you. When I would enter a courtroom, I would always be asked whose secretary I was. Yeah. And I, it's I, I think for your generation, it's a whole different perspective of I mean, seeing it, you have a woman vice president. Yeah, I mean, it, it is it is remarkable. And, and I think part of what informs this generation is, you know, this is the most diverse generation. So part of how we think about, you know, the systems that we want to build, who we want to include right. in different positions, it's inherently um connected to what we want um, our systems to look like and to reflect our generation, to reflect a generation that is diverse racially, that is diverse socioeconomically in all the different ways. And so I think when we look at um, someone like Vice President Harris and, and just kind of the characteristics that she possesses as a person of color, as a woman, that's who we want you know our judiciary to look like. And I have to say, um, someone who's done an amazing job at reshaping our judiciary is President Biden and seeing all of the people of color, seeing all of the Women, he's nominated to these positions. People who aren't um, like like Trump once did um, are they're they're all qualified by the ABA. Whereas Trump nominated women and and people across the spectrum who were disqualified by um, the American Bar Association. To have that type of experience and background and representation, I think is so important, and I think really resonates with a lot of uh, young people. It is, but of course, my hope is that we get to a point where we have highly qualified men and women, yes, and that we are basing it on their qualifications, qualifications. not their gender. Right. 
And right. I, I have never voted for a candidate because of his or her gender yes. or their gender. I vote because of their perspective, their political views. And um, that's how I picked Biden in you know the yeah. last election and was based on he represented my values. Right, right. No, I totally agree. And, and that's the world that we want to go toward. You know, we don't want to yes. keep on living in a world where we have people questioning people's um, you know, authority or credibility because of the person or because of their gender, because of their race. And, you know, we had on um, Ali Vitali, um a few months ago um, when she wrote her book about what it was like covering the 2020 election. And right. it really struck me that, you know, every single woman candidate who ran lost, and it wasn't because of their qualifications. It was because right. electorate wasn't ready for them. It was because if they tried to be confident, if they tried to be just like any other candidate, they weren't seen as qualified. They were seen as overly aggressive or as rude or as hostile. And, you know, it's sad that that was something that you faced, um, you know, all those decades ago. And now we're still facing those same problems. That's what's so depressing is that yeah. I started practicing law more than 50 years ago. Right, right. And and remember, we also had Alicia Menendez about her book, The Likeability. Right. And yeah. exactly. And we are still faced with that gender difference in how people are viewed. And I saw it when I was in law practice yeah. and you would see evaluations of associates in the law firm and men were um, aggressive. Women were bitches for the oh. same behavior. Oh. So, you know, it's okay to be assertive, but not, you know, if you're a woman being assertive, you're judged differently, but your well, generation is going to take us past that, aren't you? Yes, so what I mean, what other subjects should we talk about? What would you well, like to talk about? I mean, you you had a great op-ed. I mean, speaking of uh, both of us being in the news, you had a great op-ed the other day about cameras being allowed in the courtroom. And I think that's something that is really um, getting on the minds of a lot of people with um, Trump's impending legal cases uh, and, and, and his trials upcoming. So, um, you know, we've talked about it on this show just a little bit, but I think now is a, a time where we can dive a little bit deeper into the subject because there's everyone from Neil Katyal to you now to um, uh, a lot of people now really calling for this um, to be a thing in federal courtroom, especially for this trial. Um, uh, we talked about it before um, where, you know, this is something that we all are victims of January 6th and this effort to overturn our votes and our election is something that every American deserves to see. So walk us through your op-ed because it was great. It's in the Detroit um, News, right? That's the um, publication. So yes. walk through yeah. that um, op-ed and, and what you wrote in there, because I think it's right. worth talking about. And something that both of us, um, especially my generation, where you know we grew up in a time when it was a lot of social media, a lot of digital spaces, um, this could really benefit every generation. So we'll put a link to the um, op-ed, but let me give some, before we talk about the actual content of the op-ed, um, you know, I grew up in an era where cameras in a courtroom would have been very disruptive. They were gigantic things. I, you've never seen anything like it. Nowadays, here's a camera. Nowadays, a camera is a little teeny thing that hides behind the wall in a courtroom. You don't see it. They are used now well, first of all, we're all used to being filmed 100% of the time. You never know who's filming you. And if cameras made a difference, which is the big argument against them, is that people will play to the camera. If people play to the camera, George Floyd would be alive today. His killer knew that he was being filmed by an onlooker. He knew that body cams were filming his conduct, and he stayed on George Floyd's neck 
until he was dead. And so obviously cameras do not disrupt or people don't play to it. So that's the first and most prominent argument why we shouldn't have cameras. And people say, oh, lawyers play to the cameras. They did in the O.J. Simpson trial. Well, cameras aren't what they were back then, and we are now all used to it. So that argument just falls flat. It it just doesn't work. They say in this case, particular to the Trump case, because of his threats, it would be a danger to everyone involved, the jury, the witnesses. It doesn't work in this case because, number one, the jury does not need to be shown. They weren't in the George Floyd murder case. Derek Chauvin's jury did not get shown at all. The camera was never allowed on them. It was allowed on, and you can limit it to just the witness and the defense lawyer or the prosecutor, whoever the lawyer questioning is. You don't even have to show the judge. You could limit it to just the active participants. And the witnesses have almost all already testified in public. So there's no added danger to them if they were filmed here. They are already publicly known figures. So if there's a danger to them, it exists because the defendant is a danger, which is all the more reason to see them. And I believe the evidence shows from all the use and tests, there there have been tests in federal court and they are routinely used in state court now, cameras. And it shows that people tend to believe the verdict more when they have seen the evidence. They tend to accept the way the justice system functions when they have seen it in operation. So everything points to it is an advantage to democracy and the rule of law to have trials done. I would say we should have cameras in all courtrooms Uh, all the time. I agree. I made the op-ed limited to let's get them in for the Donald Trump case because I had the extra argument, which you've already mentioned, which is that victims get to see the trial of the perpetrator of their the crime and the right. crime alleged here is against all of us that yeah. he was trying to prevent our votes from being counted yeah. and so and of having a fair and free election and having the transfer of power be peaceful so as victims we should all get to see it so i limited it to that because of the extra argument but i do think the argument about how it helps democracy and the system of justice applies to all cases and the negatives are phony now. Yeah, no, I mean, I totally agree. And there, there are two other points that I um, think are, are worth highlighting. The first is, you know, we're, we're living in this time when faith and and um, confidence in our judiciary system is an all-time low. And so I think to have something like this, just like you said, it is only a good thing for our rule of law, for our legal system, for people to be able to see the process of justice being done and to know that no one is above the law, even the former president of the United States. And so I think to have courtroom, to have cameras in the courtroom, especially for this right. case, could be a really powerful signal for a lot of people who are saying, look, you know, our justice system is two-tiered or, you know, our justice system favors the powerful, favors the wealthy, favors um, those who have money or those who have power, um, and and will get them hopefully to begin seeing that, you know, even Donald Trump as the former president is not immune Mm -hmm. 
being held accountable. Um, the second thing I think, you know, we often talk about civics education and civic engagement and people just being involved in our system. I think having cameras in the courtroom could also inspire young people and really any generation um, to, to, to get involved in our legal system, to get involved yeah. in civics and to know how the process works. You know, we often talk about the lack of civics education and young people not knowing enough about our legal system and our civic system. And so I think for this trial to be televised could be a real powerful way. Um, and then, you know, you, you can clip these uh, trials and put it on TikTok and really use those as sort of educational tools to get young people to think about our legal system and to think about how we can, you know, create change within these systems. And so I, I think there are only positives to this. And like you said, those negatives that people often raise when they talk about um, cameras uh, being in the courtroom are totally um, moot and I think irrelevant. Um, I think right now it's it, our justice system, our democracy, our rule of law really demands it. Um, but, you know, what do you think of, like, for example, over the weekend, um, the former attorney general under Bush was on Jen Psaki's show. And he basically said that um, he doesn't he, he thinks the country isn't ready for this and that doing so will polarize the country even more. I, I don't think so. But what, what do you think about that argument? Uh, I don't think it will. I don't think we could be more polarized. Yeah, right. um, And I think that there are the people who are listening to only Fox News and to um, Donald Trump's social media platform whose name I don't want to say, um, <laughs> it, it, those people are probably lost for a long time in yeah. terms of getting facts through to them. But there are still some old-fashioned Republicans, people like your parents, people who I knew who were Republicans before Donald Trump, yeah. who will watch and go, oh, I see the evidence. I get it. Yeah. And I think that will persuade them. So I think it's worth it. Um, I want to say one other thing about cameras, and then I want to go back to your civics comments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, on cameras, I just want to say it's a simple thing to allow them. All it would take is our chief justice, John Roberts, saying we will allow cameras in the courtroom. Mm. And then it would happen. There's a judicial conference rule that says no. There is a federal rule of criminal procedure that says no. If he said they could be, that takes care of part of it. The rule, the criminal rule could be amended to say in accordance with this new position, it's okay. So, and his lawyer said he wants to have cameras in the courtroom. So the defendant wants it. The prosecution wants it. The people should want it. Let your representatives, let your congressmen know, inundate the Supreme Court with mails saying, yeah, and I mean yeah. mail, you know, the kind that will walk <laughs> up their offices, right. um, the old fashioned snail mail. Uh, but you could use email too to let them know how you feel right. and why you think Supreme Court arguments and the Donald Trump trials, plural, should be televised. And could you, could you live in a world in which it's just audio? I mean, like there, there's Supreme Court audio, but I don't think that's as powerful as video. It's not as well for the Supreme Court. It pretty much is. Mm -hmm. um, audio is pretty good. Not yeah. as good. It's a lot easier to follow who's asking. You know, they right. don't say this is, you know, Justice Thomas asking a question. Right. right. You have to learn to recognize the voices. Um, so 
visual is better. Watching television is better than listening to radio, but certainly it is a step in the right direction. And, um, you know, COVID proved that it worked to have the audio, but we need it to be an official kind of thing. But let's go to your civics thing, because one of the things that influenced you so much was your civics teacher in high school who introduced you. And we're going to try to get him on the show uh, to talk about his way of teaching and his particular program. But you want to just mention it a little bit so that our audience can know about it? Yeah, well, I think it speaks to the power of teachers and hopefully the power of um, government teachers and informing and and getting people, young people um, in high school and middle school passionate about our democracy and our civics education. But I had a great um, high school civics teacher. His name is Mr. Kaneen. And like Jill said, hopefully we will have him on this show uh, in the coming weeks. But he did such a great job of getting his students to care about civics, which is a really hard thing to do. Um, but he you know, would do these things where he would separate us into little caucuses just like the Iowa caucuses. We would feel like we were part of the system. And he had this great saying, which I still think about every single day, which is that you should embrace the civics lifestyle, that sure, it's a government class, sure, elections are every two years, but civics should be something that you embrace as a part of your lifestyle. It's a part of who you are, whether it's your pothole, whether it's your local election, whether it's you know the presidential election, civics is all around us, politics is all around us. And so to live with that reality and then to embrace that reality is something that he used to tell all of his students. And he's um, part of the reason for why I ran to become a delegate. He informed me that um, if I had turned 18 by election day in November 2020, that I could run to become a delegate for any presidential candidate. And that simple you know, information and that simple nudging by my uh, civics teacher in high school is what propelled me to run. And I think that sort of insp- inspiration, that sort of um, you know, power that civics teachers carry is so important. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, there are not enough out there um, who, who can do that right now. I mean, civics education is really lacking. Not every state even provides a civics education right. for their students. And when you look at civic literacy rates, they're really bad. I mean, I think I saw one statistics that said one or two in four, uh, two, two out of every four people, uh, young people can't even name three out of the three branches of government. I mean, it's what? really shocking. Yeah. And, and it's, it's really shocking. And so it's this movement that I think a lot How of how many adults can do that. Oh, I don't know. I I bet it's not much higher. <laughs> Probably not much higher. And so there is, I think, this growing and desperately needed movement to get civics education in every single state at young, you know, eighth grade is when I first took it, hopefully in eighth grade, hopefully, you know, in high school, but just before people graduate from college, before people can vote so they know how the system works. And anything short of that, it's why, you know, something like televising the trials is important. It's why back um, in high school, I was... I learned a lot from the Trump administration and all of the impeachment hearings, you know, getting to learn about that and, and what it meant to obstruct justice and what it meant for a president to break the rule of law. I think that was really powerful. But, um, you know, hopefully we can have him on and we can ask him about how he teaches civics education, because I think right. it's a really unique way. Um, Joe, what, what about you? I mean, it's hard for my generation, I think, to imagine what a proper civics education looks like. Um, I'm assuming you came from a time when there was a proper civics education, when it was mandated. Is that right? You know, I, it's so long ago. Do I remember if I had it or not? No, I don't. But I, I certainly learned about the three branches of government. And 
I, I it was something that was part of my household where we talked about politics and government and elections. And speaking yeah. of elections, let's talk a little bit. I, I haven't I'm, I'm enjoying the conversation, so I'm not paying attention to the time. But let's talk about the fact that, number one, there is a upcoming debate from which the front runner will be absent. Um, but also I want to talk about in terms of media, how the media covers President Biden. And maybe let's start with that, because whatever yeah. we say about the upcoming debate. Well, let me ask you first, are you going to watch the debate? Unfortunately, I do have to watch the debate. Um, so I actually have been uh, tasked tomorrow for Center for American Progress to do rapid response for that debate. And so I will be watching that on Fox. Um, it's not too far away from where you are, Jill, actually. It's in Wisconsin. So you'll be close yeah. <laughs> to all of those candidates um, yeah. than, than I am. But so I wish you the best of luck. Hopefully you don't, that doesn't um, distract you too much. <laughs> well, I, I, I probably will watch it, but I will certainly watch the MSNBC coverage of it afterwards. Yeah. Yes. They're going to so be doing some analysis of it, and that will be worth watching. But I personally am one of those people who likes to get things firsthand. I don't yeah. want to be told what was said. Right. I want to see watch. it said and feel it in the moment. No, so I, I will I watch it. But let's talk about the coverage of Biden, because I am so disheartened by even what I would consider, or not what I would consider, what the right wing would consider left wing media. Yeah. yeah. They, they seem to be covering any gaffe and not the accomplishments. And yeah. the accomplishments are so astounding. He has done so much more than anyone could. And even the stuff about uh, the, the Maui tragic wildfires, um, he's criticized because he didn't say enough in support of the people who were suffering in the moment of their suffering. He was busy sending federal troops and federal personnel to take care of them. He was doing his job. Yeah, yeah. Now he is the consoler in chief and there is no consoler in chief better than, well, I mean, let's compare him to the last one. Okay. I mean, <laughs> he had no, you know, no sympathy for anybody, no empathy. Um, or he and threw so, paper towels at those yes. in Puerto Rico. I mean, yes, like <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's his idea of a joke, I guess. Right. Or of maybe that's his idea of empathy. Absolutely. I'm not sure. But it, it just disappoints me that that, you know, you read things and the headlines are always if it's 50 50, it's 50 percent against Biden right. as opposed to 50 percent support Biden. Right. And right. it makes a difference in, you know, the headline. You may remember I was a journalism student, yes, and yes. so I learned about some of this stuff. And first impression is what you see in the headline, and you will right. read the whole article thinking he's losing. Yeah. And in fact, if when you read the whole thing, he isn't losing. Yeah. And so I just I I wish headline writers at least would get things right. Totally. Well, I mean, I I've been quite vocal um, vocally against what the media is doing for President Biden because, like you said, I mean, he's done so much for us. And there are two examples that come up for me in the past week that I think highlight um, the uh, lack of attention and credit that he deserves. The first one is actually um, from yesterday, Monday, which is that you know you had everyone saying that President Biden hasn't done enough. Like yesterday, he was on the ground in Maui um, with the governor of Maui, with the governor of Hawaii, with the mayor of Maui, with um, the two senators who represent Hawaii, and all of them were saying just how extraordinarily right. 
he acted. And then President Biden gave remarks. And there was only one media network that covered it. And that was CNN, um, both Fox and MSNBC did not cover that or um, give give that speech the, the live um, covers that it deserved. Um, I thought that was an important moment that should have been covered. And then last Friday was this historic trilateral summit at Camp yes. David. Um, between South Korea, Japan, and the United States. And for, you know, I, I, I'm i sad that I didn't really learn much about Asian American history until um, later on in my, uh, I guess, life. And um, I read this one book called Pachinko, and it really detailed the the conflict between Japanese, the, you know, the Japanese and Koreans. And so it was extraordinary to see Japan and South Korea come together at Camp David for this yes. really historic summit. And um, you had networks basically cutting out of the coverage halfway in between because they thought, you know, it wasn't exciting enough. And that's something that I think would have been covered if Trump did the same thing. I mean, you remember everything, of, you know, all of the constant attention and coverage that Trump got for really pointless and dangerous things. Um, President Biden just isn't getting enough attention, I think, or credit for all of the things he's doing. And um, I think the media really needs to get on board in it really makes me um, revolted every single time I hear the media talk about, well, you know, the American people aren't feeling what this administration is doing, or they don't know enough about it. Well, maybe if the media- Tell them, tell them. Yes, exactly. Maybe if the media told them about it, they would know about it. And so I I think it, you know, the media is not, I I hope they learn, but in short of that, I really hope that everyone listening to this, I hope that everyone out there um, who follows President Biden will be um, the messengers will be the people who will amplify these successes um, and really get, uh, you know, talk to your neighbor, talk to your friend, talk to your family members about what this administration is doing, um, because it is really extraordinary. You look at the economy, unemployment at an all-time low. I guess in the past 50 years, you look at inflation a year ago is at 9.2%. Now it's at 3%. I mean, you look at all of these metrics, it's just amazing. And um, it saddens me that President Biden isn't um, getting uh, the credit that he deserves because it's pretty amazing what he's doing. You're making me feel guilty because I try to limit my social media to legal issues. And mm-hmm. I progress. I, I do get a lot of information about the activities of the White House and the yeah. accomplishments of the White House. And I, I, I have hesitated to post those, but I think maybe it's a legitimate concern is that in order to inform people, they need to have the facts. And you're right, the, the statistics and the facts, um, you know, I've, I've worked in both Korea and Japan yeah. and I, I, fully understand the history and the tensions. And this was a very major accomplishment to get them in the same room at the same time. Um, I mean, I don't know if you remember the Camp David Accords, that was a yes, big yes. deal. Um, and this is an equally big deal and right, it right. deserves as much attention as the Camp David. And again, it was at Camp David. So it's another Camp David Accord um, and could benefit America enormously. Yes. enormously. And you know what uh, I think is is so amazing about this administration is even with you know we talk a lot about polarization how divided our country is the things that this administration are doing don't just benefit Democrats, people who you know support President Biden. They benefit Republicans. I mean, you think of his um, Inflation Reduction Act and his infrastructure law. The the top people who get those funding and who get those resources are Republican states, Texas, um, Southern states, and it's like you know, as Americans, no matter what you believe in, no matter where you come from, this administration is delivering right. for you. And I think that's why I 
you know, that political piece that you mentioned at the beginning of this episode, you know, they, they titled it, uh, they titled me President Biden's Gen Z hype man. And well, I'm like, you know, I, I don't, I don't feel shy about doing that because it benefits all of us. You know, these are programs that don't just benefit one group. It's benefiting every American, whether you're a Democrat, independent, Republican. And I think that's something to be proud of. And that's something well, that we should celebrate. Something that we, we don't see. Certainly. And, and we have to keep in mind that most of these things have been accomplished by a straight party line vote. That it's yes. all Democrats. The Republicans vote right. against it. And then they have the nerve to say to their people, <laughs> look at this great bridge being built. Look at this great whatever it is. That's a result of their having voted against it. They voted against the funding for all that stuff. And I mean, <laughs> we we need to get ourselves together. We need to get Tommy Tuberville to stop standing in the way of the Defense Authorization Act and the um, approval of all the pending generals so that we have leaders for all the branches of our service uh, the party that used to be so big on defense is now standing in the way of defense. And yeah. uh, well, at least Tuberville is, but his party is letting him do it and there right. he's getting away with it. So and now it's really sad. has said a word about it. Mitch McConnell right. has not said a word about it. Um, you know, it goes back to when we had Miles Taylor on, you have all these Republicans who just won't right. say anything about this type of conduct, um, whether it's Trump's indictments or Tommy Tuberville um, blocking uh, military uh, personnel and really holding up our military. I mean, it's just sickening to see their silence. It certainly is. It certainly is. So, well, this has been a great conversation. What do you think? It has been a great conversation. And, and, and you know, for those of us, for those of you listening um, uh, or watching, let us know what you think of this format. Maybe we can do some more just between yeah. I mean, I think we covered a lot of ground. Or better uh, yet, they could send us questions they'd like us to talk about. Right. What right. issues they are concerned about and whether they have different views based on their, you know, are they my generation or are they your generation yeah. or yeah. somewhere in between? I don't know what the dividing line is going to be. Let's see. The average age would be, I don't know, sort of more toward my end, I think. <laughs> um Let's well, see. you know, we, we often talk about, I think maybe ending the episode would be fun to do it like this. You know, we often talk about what unites you and me and, you know, all of our similarities. Well, we often talk about the differences in terms of the way we speak and, and some of the terms <laughs> we use. And we haven't talked about that before. And Jill, you've taught me some uh, terms like uh, <laughs> what a record player is. And <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> or the phrase, you sound like a broken record. Yes. Which yes. I, it's when I worked for the Chicago public schools, they at the beginning of the school year would send out to teachers things that they shouldn't say. And I looked at that and I thought, what? And the explanation <laughs> was nobody knew what a broken record was. Right, and, right. But now those are back. I mean, little, you know, I don't know if they're the 78s or the 45s. The 45s were little, 78s were big things. Um People are now going back to that because the sound is better than the digital versions. And but nobody knew what a broken record sound like, or you sound like chalk on a blackboard. Did, <laughs> you never had a blackboard, probably, right? Did you have blackboards well, you, when you, you were in school? I, I actually, well, I had blackboards in elementary school, and then my middle school didn't have it, but my high school, um, switched to whiteboards the year I went into it. But before then, they had blackboards. Um, okay, but but um, people growing up now don't know what a blackboard, what chalk oh. screeching sounds like. It is one of the most <laughs> awful sounds. And But both of us say 
pop, not soda, because we're both from the Midwest. So that's not generational. It's just we're Midwesterners. We call Coke is called pop. And when I went to law school, people would go like, what? And it's because most most of them were from the East and said soda. Um, What's what's your what's like a slang from your um, era? Because I can think of many slangs from my I'm curious if you what you think of some of the slangs I I have. Like Um, what? So (laughs) there's um, well, one of them is like you literally just say W like that's a that's a, that's a W meaning that's a win. Um, oh. so one of the slang um, there is a uh, slang called cap, which is funny because when I when I told some of my friends at um, UCLA, I interning at Center for <laughs> Progress cap, they're saying cap usually means um, a lie. So like you're, you're capping, oh, really um, that's a cap. You would say it's a lie. <laughs> yeah. um, well, those uh, are two I never heard before, I have to say. Um, <laughs> We, so those are some examples. I'm trying to think of, well, we used to call, um, I don't know, what would be the today's word? The hoodlums in high school were called hoods. And, and those were the guys with the slick back hair, the greaser hair, oh, and the oh, oh. black leather jackets. And they would wear cigarettes rolled up in their shirt sleeve. <laughs> Um, I I can't think of very many other things. And I have to say my first year of high school, I graduated in the city and moved to the suburbs in February when I graduated grade school. But in the suburbs, there was no February graduation. So my first year, my first semester in high school, I was taking algebra one, et cetera, with all the kids who had flunked the first semester and we're repeating it. So <laughs> I, I was with the guys who rolled cigarettes up in their sleeves. Um, <laughs> it, it was not a, a socially successful year, I would say. Well, <laughs> I, I overcame it, but it yes. was a bad first semester. Yes. Bad well, first semester. Look, look, look where you are now. So it, it it's okay. Um, well, this has been a very fun episode. And, you know, if you're listening to this, let us know what slings you've used because um, I, I do want to learn more slings and lingo from previous generations. Um, so let us know what, what if you're if you come from you know if you're a millennial if you're a Gen Xer um, you know a, a baby boomer part of the silent generation. Let us know what what words you yeah. use. Um, I, I use the Urban Dictionary a lot. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I know what I'm reading. Yes, yes. Sometimes before I hit like on any kind of social media i have to look up to make sure it doesn't mean something terrible well oh i actually have a funny story about that so my junior english teacher um you know she was asked what are you doing over the weekend and she said oh well i'm netflix and chilling um and and <laughs> the literal i guess literally she thought it would be I'm, i will be watching netflix and i will be chilling well there's a very different connotation for netflix and chilling among young people oh, which is that netflix what is it chilling <laughs> means that you watch a movie or you watch something on netflix and then afterward you begin to have sexual intercourse. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. So, so that, chilling her... is a bad thing. Yes, yes. Or so maybe a good thing, chilling. but okay. She not said that, she not said, what you say to your students. No, not what you say to your students. So, much, so when she said that, her, the entire class went, what? <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, um... Did any parents complain? Because today they would. Yes. I don't think any did, but she learned a big lesson. And so now she does not say, she just says, I will be watching Netflix. <laughs> but that was the funny moment. Oh, God. I remember a third grade teacher who gave me the best advice ever. 
I was nominated to be the president of my class. And we voted by putting our heads down on our desk and raising our hands. And I didn't vote for myself because I thought it wasn't ladylike and was too pushy. And she stopped the election and called me out into the hall and said, if you don't have the confidence in yourself to vote for yourself, then you shouldn't be running. Mm. And I went back in and I voted for myself and learned a very important lesson. So like your teacher, I learned a very important teacher uh, lesson from my teacher. Thank you, Miss Cartolano. Oh, I love that. I think that is the best way to end this episode um, by knowing the importance of your self-worth and by um, advocating for yourself because no one else will. Um, Jill, uh, this has been very fun. Next week, we will return to normal programming. And like Jill said, send us your questions um, and we will answer them in maybe another installment of uh, Jill and Victor, just the two of us having intergenerational dialogue. Thank you for listening to iGen Politics. Thank you. And we hope you will subscribe wherever you follow your podcast or on YouTube at youtube.com slash Politicon so you don't miss an episode. Thanks, everyone. And we'll see you next week.